1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28 is going to be the beginning of our focus. We've been cruising now for over six years through the book of 1 Corinthians. And now we are in the largest chapter of the book. So I hope everybody's comfortable. We could be here a while. Let's read the word of the Lord and ask him to teach us. Beginning in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man, since by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, after that those who are, in, who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted to put, expected to put all things in in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Father, help us to hear. Help us to understand. Father, I ask that uh, you would teach today, Father, a text that is so massive for finite minds. Uh, that, uh, that we look into the infinite. And, uh, Father, we struggle to conform it into our image, into our understanding. And, Lord, as I even read these, I understand this is you. And um, I cannot grasp this. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And, Father, give us the faith that rests full weight upon the resurrection. In Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, there's 58 verses in this chapter. We are just now moving into chapter 20 or into verse 20, so you might as well be comfortable. No, I'm not going to try to cover the rest of the chapter, please. I'm actually just going to hang on a phrase. You know how he is, but I want to set it up as we're moving into it. You have an outline in there, and this section is what I call the resurrection plan, and it falls into three categories the Redeemer, the Redeemed, and the Restoration. Uh, it is all covered in these eight verses, uh, and those of you who have known me for a while know that we will be here for a while, uh, because uh, it will take me a while just to get through the Redeemer. Um, not so long on the redeemed, uh, but the restoration will take a while too. Okay, And basically what we're doing is we're nailing down the resurrection. This is the first letter of the New Testament that contained any information on the resurrection, chronologically. Um, but I will be honest with you. This chapter is of great frustration to me. And, uh, and I apologize. But it frustrates me because my puny mind is trying to grasp this thing. Okay? And I'll be honest with you. I do not have a vocabulary to express this concept. And anyone who says that they do or they have, you may want to flee. 
Um, this is a tough piece of scripture. I shared with you a week ago, I think it was, that I run into a college kid and he says, I'm a Christian, but I just struggle with stuff. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, how can I say with faith that I believe in the story of Jonah and that he was literally swallowed by a fish and then the fish spit him out on the shore? And, you know, of course, me, I said, well, Pinocchio believed. But anyway... Um, I said, if you struggle with that one, what do you do with the resurrection? I mean, I can probably lean heavy on the fish thing. Getting up from the dead is just a tad bit tough. And yeah, that's what the Apostle Paul, he already started there in chapter 15, verse 1. I make known to you, brother, the gospel which I preached to you, you received, you stand, are saved if you hold fast. What was the gospel? Christ was raised from the dead. And then he just cranks out in that first 11 verses. Let me tell you about the resurrection because there was only a little over 600 eyewitnesses. And some of them were his disciples. They were expecting a resurrection. Um, one was his half brother who really wasn't sold on his ministry when they, he was alive. But because of the resurrection of his half-brother, he became the first pastor of the first church that ever existed. And then there was me, Paul says, and I was the one who went out and tried to kill the church. Not only did I not believe in the resurrection, I was here to prove the rest of you guys weren't going to get resurrected too, and I was going to send as many of you forward as I could. And yet the resurrected Christ caught me on the Damascus Road. Okay, so God even takes enemies of Jesus Christ and uses them to validate the resurrection. Do you understand what he's saying? The resurrection of the dead. Most of us in here have experienced some death uh, of a loved one, a, um, a relative or something to this effect. And there is no doubt in your mind. Uh, I know as uh, there was a time there I was as, as an EMT that you could watch life leave people. Okay. In some cases, resuscitation and stuff, you could bring it back. But, but I can't describe it except for this. You can look into a person's eyes and watch life leave. And that's the only way I can describe it. You can just look in there and say, see ya. Okay. Um, anyway, I, don't, I won't use that illustration. But I, I share that with you because um, this text, chapter 15, says that this man was dead and got out of the grave. Okay. Um. We've looked at the first 11 verses and then the, that were the eyewitnesses. And then 12 through 19, we looked at the consequences. Um, and then 20 through 28 is, as best as I can describe, is, is, is trying to some way visualize the resurrection. Do you realize how difficult that is to teach? That's tough. I don't know about you. I have been blessed 
tremendously beyond what I could ever even understood with my travel through this book. And um, I pray that you have been. But I was reading a guy named Eric Sauer, and I, and I thought this was fascinating as I read it. And, and I'll give you this portion of the quote and, and see if you can kind of see what I mean. Quote, this present age is Easter time. It begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer and it ends with the resurrection of the redeemed between the spiritual resurrection of those called into life through Christ Jesus our Lord, unquote. I've made the comment with my family trying to get out of Christmas, well, it was, that our greatest time of celebration should be Easter. Why? Because if he doesn't get out of the grave, what is the birth? What is the birth? So when I think about Eric Sauer's understanding of this, I look at it and I say, so we live between two Easter's. But we live in a time of spiritual resurrection. So we live, we breathe, we exist in quote-unquote resurrected lives. Well, when will be the last Easter? When will it be? Well, that's easy. When we all get to heaven. That's not difficult. That's the easiest question I've ever asked. But I want you to think about it with me. And if those of you who have been around me a while know that when I move into another section, I sort of give you this great big overview of what we're looking at and why and how does it fit in this letter to the Corinthians. Have you ever thought, when you think about the resurrection, most times, and I mean, even when I use the word Easter, we think about Easter Baskets and coloring hard-boiled eggs. Um, we have in our mindset, uh, some people get up really early on Easter to a sunrise service somewhere. Um, uh, some of us would even look at it as one of the great of the two high holy days. You have Christmas and Easter, and those are the times that you're supposed to go to church. Let me give you some ideas about Easter that I think might help. Okay, especially when we've been a few weeks now in the resurrection. There are four great promises connected with the last Easter. Um, I, I guess if you wanted to look at it from a theological viewpoint, it would be four major elements that exist with this last Easter. Now remember, there was the first one. Christ coming out of the grave. There is the spiritual resurrection that those who are called into Christ are all going to be walking in, and then there will be this last Easter. Okay, This last Easter has some uniqueness to it. Number one, the judgment seat of Christ is associated, is a basis, is a promise of the last Easter. Jesus, to the warning of the churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, says, I come quickly and I have my reward with me. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account of what we've done in the body, whether good 
or bad. So at this second Easter, there is the judgment seat of Christ. Second thing will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelations 19. It's sort of like after the rewards, there will be this great feast, this great festival, this great time of fellowship, this great supper where the bride, the church, will join with the groom and it is going to give a whole new meaning to a glorious time. It's kind of amazing if you think about it. The third element of this last Easter is the coming earthly kingdom. We've already looked at this all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we will rule with Christ in his kingdom. In his context there, he's talking about why are you taking disputes between the saints to pagan courts when you will rule with Christ? So there will be the coming earthly kingdom. So when you think about the future, when you think about what you're accomplishing and what your goals are and what you're doing, when you look forward, do you look forward to a time of great reward? Do you look forward to a time of great fellowship with Christ? Do you look forward to a time of his return and ruling with him? And then the fourth thing is the key to all of it. The resurrection. The resurrection. I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of redemptive history. Now, don't get me wrong. When you see him face to face, woo But let me tell you something. He gets not out of the grave. There is no redemptive history. Listen, what I just gave you there, those four things, those four truths, is the theme of 1 Corinthians 15. All right? Because what had happened to this church, what I see in the church today is that society had influenced the church. Listen, when you come to salvation, regardless of your age, you're going to bring in all of your philosophies, all of your understandings, all of your acknowledgments with you. And then the pruning process begins. I remember having a discussion on baptism. (laughs) And it was so funny. Because the person was arguing that baptism does not save you. And I was saying, you're right. It doesn't. Water baptism does not save you. Well, then why would we do it? It is an act of obedience. God says, be baptized. Oh, okay. And he said, well, that's silly. And I said, no, it's not because the other battle's already begun. He says, well, what battle is that? I said, he's already working on your pride. If you think baptism's tough, wait till he starts messing with your pride. And he will. He will. And what had happened here in Corinth was that the Greek philosophy of the day 
had actually taken some into denying the literal bodily resurrection and trying to move it into a spiritual resurrection or some modification of the resurrection. And you know what? I believe that some of us in this room today modify the resurrection in our lives just so that we're comfortable with it. You've got to get a hold of this. I'm talking about a dead body that gets up and comes alive again. I'm thinking that nobody's done that. This is just a thought. The Greek philosophy said that the dead don't rise. And Paul confronts it basically in verse 12. How can you say some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And then Paul tackles this, the whole idea of the resurrection in probably the single greatest chapter that's ever been written on such a topic. There are two massive truths that he brings together that collide in chapter 15. One is the resurrection of Christ. And we who are believed, we who are saved, we, amen. But he crushes right into the side of that, blends the two together, speaks of the resurrection of the believer. Both are really one and the same, if you're truly honest. See, his argument in chapter 15 is very logical in its procedure. Okay? He acknowledged... It's the problem in the first 11 verses without ever mentioning the problem until verse 12. How can some say there is no resurrection? He reminds them that they have already received. They have already believed. They already stand. They are already being saved by the bodily resurrection of Christ Jesus. He reminds them that they already as believers in the bodily resurrection and at least of Christ. Paul says, you already believe that. Why would some say there is no resurrection? Verse 12. When you already believe he rose. So now what is he doing? One of the responses is, okay, I believe in the uniqueness of the bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But the argument would come, that doesn't do anything with us. It has no impact on us. Christ's resurrection was unique. It was a one-time deal has nothing to do with us. Oh. But what do you do with verses 20 through 28? I mean, that's basically what he's doing. See, 20 says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Why? He's already beat him senseless. I give you 11 verses on eyewitnesses of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And then in verses 12 through 19, I give you the consequences, seven consequences, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And he concludes it with, we are of all men the most to be pitied. 
if there is no resurrection. And I shared this with you last week because I have put all my proverbial eggs in one basket. That's the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, uh oh. <laughs> but then he makes some strange statements, and that's where I sort of want to go today. Look what he says. But now, in light of the 19 verses that I've just given you, it is so obvious Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. All right? So basically he says, your argument that there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ is silly. Okay? But then he's adding now what happens. You can't say Christ did it and it has no impact on us. His bodily, physical, little resurrection, sure, that's believable, son of God, I'll go with it. But it doesn't mean we'll be raised. And Paul says, listen, he is raised, he is also the first fruits of them who slept. What in the world is he getting at now? Well, I think he's getting at you and me. We've already discussed the consequences. You've got big problems if there is no bodily resurrection. Christ has risen. But now, Christ has risen. But don't stop there. He is the first fruits of the whole harvest of resurrection. Okay? He doesn't, the resurrection doesn't stop with Christ. He was raised to be the first fruit of all of us in resurrected life. Okay? That is what is the basis of this outline. Who is the Redeemer? Who are the redeemed? And what is the restoration? And that's what he's going to deal with. The resurrection... Now listen, I, I don't want to underplay this. The resurrection of Christ was very, 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 very unique. Please. Okay. Verse 11 verse says you believe it. 12 through 19, you better believe it or you'll lose everything. Now, if your translation in there, see what it says here. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 20, the first fruits of those who are asleep. If your ver if your Bible, if you have King James only, it will sit in there, it will say, and become the first fruit. That is not in the better manuscripts. Okay? Um, it's literally in the Greek language, Christ has been raised the first fruits of those who are asleep. Okay? And what is he getting at? Alright? He's always been the first fruit. Alright? He didn't and become because of the resurrection. He was the first fruit. But I want you to think about it because, and I'm not going to turn back to it, but in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, okay, they're given the law on what they're going to do when they get into the promised land. Okay, this is what you're going to do. And this is an amazing text because this is the terminology that the Apostle Paul throws out right now here. It was required before the Passover. Okay, everybody know what the Passover is? Okay, that's when God passed over the sons of Israel and killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians to bring them out of Egyptian slavery. All right? Okay, 
But before the Passover celebration, you would have had a harvest. Okay, most likely for the land of Israel, it would have been barley. Okay, and what the the Jews would do in Israel is that they would do what I call a progression of planting. Okay, you would have a group of that you would plant maybe in these two weeks, and then you would plant in these two weeks, and you'd plant in these two weeks, and you would plant in these two weeks, and you would almost keep it going as you planted. We here today don't understand it. Uh, even those who are in agricultural backgrounds don't understand it because we have the ability with the equipment we have to just tear it all up and start all over again. You'll hear stuff, we describe it as you have spring wheat, you have winter wheat, and you have summer harvest. Okay? Whereas what they would do to make sure that if it went into a drought or a hailstorm storm or something to this effect, you know, I would only lose part of my crop and I would still have the, resi- uh, the reserve back to, to grow behind it. That is the idea that is behind first fruit. First fruit, the earliest planted, would be the first to harvest. Okay, that's what the book of Leviticus is teaching in this text. But here's what God said. You take your first cutting, your first fruit of barley, and I want you to bring it in a sheaf. I want you to wrap it up and I want you to do what with it? Present it to the priest. Okay, I'm going to give it to the priest. Why? Because you have planted in progression and you have planted it in this earliest and this has already come in. This is the proverbial, uh, I have it in hand. Okay, now normally what would you and I do? Let's let's take away, we got no Safeway, got no King Super, we got no Sam's Club, we ain't got no Wally World, nothing. Okay, so if I'm going to eat produce, I'm going to grow it. Okay, I'm going to grow it in progression because I've been in Colorado long enough to see the wind. I've seen the drought. I've seen the hail. I've seen all that stuff that happens. So I'm growing it in progression. All right, when I get that first harvest in, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to hide it. By golly, I'm going to put it down in the cellar. I'm going to put it in jars. I'm going to do what? What? Because what if I lose the second cutting? Hmm. God says, that's not what I want you to do. When the first comes in, you know it's there. You know it's good. It's right there. It's in your hands. To show your love to God, instead of stashing it away, I want you to give it to me. And I want you to do it as an act of faith. Why? Because by you doing that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the rest of the harvest. But it's not a matter of you trusting your farming skills. It's a matter of you trusting God. You've heard me tell you this over and over again. There's only one thing that a Christian has ever been called to grow in. What is it? Faith. And how do you do it? First fruits. There is no greater act of trust now, is there? The stuff that you have in hand. This is mine. I work for it. 
You give it to him right off the top, the very best you have. Just give it to him. You can't harvest the rest until you have done that as an act of faith during the Passover. That's what the text says. 23 of Leviticus. It says, you don't even go into your field for your possessions until you have given to me in an act of faith what I have produced anyway. That's the whole point of Paul here in this 20th verse. Just as the full harvest could never be made until the first fruits were given, so we will never rise until Christ has risen. And Christ is the guarantee of the harvest. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That's Paul's point. It was the resurrection of Christ. He comes out of the grave and he offers himself to God. And then that offering, with that offering, he secures us in our resurrection. Because he was the first fruits. Now listen, mark it. Keep this in your mind. First fruits was a sign, was a symbol of the coming harvest. Before you could harvest your field, you brought your first fruits and you gave them to God. Okay? And then you got to harvest. Same thing here. The resurrection of Christ is a sign. It's a symbol of what? Of a harvest. Of a harvest. Of God's guarantee. The fruit of resurrection. You can't have Christ being raised and no impact or no effect on the believers. That's what Paul just blasts that one right out of the ground. Christ is risen. And guess what? Christ is not risen in isolation. He's not a piece of grain that has been separated from the garden that kind of grows in God's little greenhouse. He's in the field. He's with us. He is the first fruits. He was offered to God first. His best. His guaranteed. And that by faith now, what happens? We... Will be in the harvest of the resurrection. He is a part of the whole resurrection, the guarantee for the rest of us. He is the seed that dies and springs to life as the rest of us. We fall into the ground in death, every one of us. None of us get out of this thing alive. And we will rise because I cannot be isolated from the first fruit. Isn't that cool? Well, that just makes you want to just jump up and slap somebody. Well, maybe not. Okay, now listen, I want to, I want to try to deal with something here because I, I, you need to understand first fruit. First fruit is Christ. The first, it, it doesn't say he is the first to rise. Okay? 
Elijah raised a little boy from the dead. Jesus, the record of his life and ministry, I see three that he raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the son of the widow, and we all know Lazarus. First fruit doesn't mean first one out. Okay, He's not the first out of the grave. He is the first fruit. He is the guarantee of the resurrection harvest. That there will be many. Now listen, I also want to give you a little footnote. Just to hang on this one for a second. Every person in the Bible who has been raised from the dead died again. Okay? Except Christ. And he was raised to glory. Well, preacher, what about Enoch and Elijah? Well, they never died. They were just walking with God and they went with God right into heaven. There was no death there. They were here and they weren't. Those who died, only one has been raised to never die again. Therefore, he is the first fruits. Well, preacher, I happen to read my Bible. I see how it works. I remember Colossians 1.18. It says he was the firstborn of the dead. And he wasn't. In Revelations 1.5 it says he was the first begotten of the dead. He wasn't. He wasn't. See there? The Bible contradicts itself. No, that's the new King James guys. Love them. King James is authoritative. King James does not translate the word prototokos correctly. Okay, because in both of those texts, the word first is prototokos. Okay, did you know that prototokos has nothing to do with numerical? Okay, it's not one, two, three, four, five, six. Prototokos means primary or the best one, the greatest one, the preeminent one. So when you read Colossians chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 1, you will find that the most important one out of the graves was Christ. How important was he? The prototokos, which is Jesus Christ, becomes the first fruits of the resurrections of all of those who are in Christ. I'm thinking that's important. Christ is not the first to rise. He is the greatest to rise from the dead. He is the prototokos of all who have ever rose. Or all who will ever rise. And he is the first fruit. He is the guarantor of the ultimate resurrection harvest. That's cool. Those are the uniqueness of Christ. I don't want you to get... That out of the, out of sight. I, there's a time that we start looking at our resurrection and we forget about the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection. And I do not want you to do that. Okay? Please don't do that. Christ rose. Okay? And He is the first fruit, the guarantee of those who slept. Those who have slept. He is the guarantee of it. Please keep that in mind. He is the prototokos. Okay? He is the most important one to come out of the grave. 
You get it? If it was just a resurrection, then Lazarus would be our Savior. Okay? Cyrus' daughter. Nah, I don't think so. Okay? The little boy, Elijah raised. He would be the first. But all of them died again. How depressing must that be? Anyway, that's a whole different sermon. But there was one who was the most important. The first fruit. And that is your and my Redeemer. And He is the guarantee of the resurrection harvest. We need to get a hold of that one. Because you are being inundated daily with information that is contrary to this. And it is unrelenting. But I'll help you with it. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. And if the first fruit, the guarantee of the resurrection has already been accepted and risen and offered to God, what problem you got? What stress do you have? There is none. Why? I am sealed in the fact that the guarantee of the resurrection the first offering has been offered. Now God says, by faith know that the harvest is yours. I like that idea. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the prototokos, for our Savior, for our Lord, for His sacrifice on our behalf. And Father, thank you that through the resurrection, You have proven so many things. And Father, even as it was a symbol before Israel, Father, let it be a symbol before us. The first fruit. The first fruit. Father, we who are called by your name are now guaranteed a resurrection harvest. Oh, Lord, please let your people understand that. Please let them live by faith in that. Let it be an overwhelming force in their lives that they may live resurrected lives. Father, and I think that we are between two Easter's and yet the Easter we exist in at this time is the spiritual resurrection. We have been raised to walk in the newness of life. Help us, Father, to walk in the newness of life, not by sight, by your power, by your grace, by your mercy. Help us, Lord. Please help us. To your glory and praise. In Christ's precious name. Amen.